Hey there, Crimaholics. It is your host, Kinsey, back this week with another Friday episode. I want to say thank you to Trish from St. Petersburg, Florida for suggesting this week's case. If you would also like to suggest a case for us, you can find that link in our bio on Instagram or you can find it in our Crimeholics podcast discussion group on Facebook. We always love to hear what you guys have for us. That's all I have to say for this week, so let's get started. In 1989, Amy Widener lived in Indianapolis, Indiana with her mother, who was a single mother raising her two sisters and older brother completely on her own. Despite being a single mom and spending most of her time working and worrying about her kids, her mother did an excellent job when it came to raising her children. Every one of them were great kids and super well-behaved. Amy in particular. She was a very well-rounded child who was highly involved in school activities and always stayed on the honor roll. Things would begin to change when she was about 14 years old. Amy went to her mom feeling extremely guilty and really upset as she was about to tell her that she was five and a half month pregnant. When Amy breaks the news to her mom, her mom is in absolute shock, trying to figure out how she didn't notice. But when she looks back on the previous months, she remembers Amy starting to wear baggy clothes that could easily hide a pregnancy. There is a million thoughts running through Amy's mother's head, but what she wants to know is who is the father of her grandbaby. Amy opens up and tells her mother that the father of the child is 17-year-old Tony Abercrombie. Her mother is mad because Tony is her son, JP's best friend. This is a boy who was always welcome to their home. He was basically family and she was so mad that this had been going on behind her back for God knows how long. Her mom is in so much panic because not only is her 14-year-old daughter going to have a baby of her own, but she is already a single mother of four children. How in the world are they going to be able to care for another baby? Despite all of her worries, she sticks by her daughter's side and does everything she can to help her and her grandbaby. Four months later in October, Amy gives birth to a beautiful baby girl and she names her Emily. Because Amy is a very particular child when it comes to school and her studies are very important to her, instead of taking off an extended amount of time from school or even not returning and earning a GED, she decides that she's only going to take off just six days of school after she gives birth. Her mom being extremely upset over JP's best friend Tony being the father, she tells Amy that Tony is not allowed to be around the house, he cannot be around the baby, and he is no longer allowed to hang out with JP. Amy only being 14 years old and obviously a first-time parent, she decides to listen to her mother as she feels that her mother knows what's best. So Tony does not have any type of relationship with Amy nor his daughter Emily. With Amy officially being a single mother, her family steps up to the plate and helps Amy raise Emily. You would think with Amy only being 14 years old and a single mother that her life would come to a screeching halt and things would begin to fall apart. But that was not the case at all because of the major support that her family had offered her. With that support, she was able to continue getting really good grades and even have a bit of a social life. Everyone in Amy's life was actually very shocked to see how well she was doing as a single mother, but she would not have been able to do any of it without her family. For the next two years, things continue to go amazing in the Widener household until tragedy strikes on November 13, 1989, when Amy is 16 years old and her baby Emily is now two. On this particular morning of November 13th, Amy wakes up and she's feeling rather sick. She has a little bit of a fever and a sore throat and tells her mom that she wants to stay home from school that day. 
Her mom asks her if she would like her to take Emily over to the babysitters, but Amy declines and says that she does feel bad, but not bad enough to where she feels like she can't care for the baby throughout the day and asks her mom to leave her at the house. Amy's mom and all of her siblings leave that morning for work and school as usual, and Amy and Emily go back to sleep. Around 9.15 that morning, her mom calls to check in on her and Emily, but she does not get an answer. She calls back twice more, and Amy still does not answer the phone call. After the third call of no answer, she starts to get a little worried and asks a neighbor of hers to go over to the house and check on the girls. When the neighbor goes over to the home, she knocks on the door and nobody answers. She decides to wait a few more minutes, and she tries several times more, but again, nobody answers. When she goes back to her house, she phones Amy's mom at work to let her know that Amy never came to the door. She is really worried because she knows that she left Amy homesick, so she leaves work and drives home. When she gets to the house, it is completely quiet. She is looking all over the house. She's looking in the living room, the kitchen, all of the bathrooms, and downstairs, there's nobody to be found. She's calling out for Amy, and she's getting absolutely nothing. When she walks upstairs into Amy's bedroom, she opens the door, and she finds her daughter on the bed, completely bloody and beaten. Her mother is in complete panic mode as she's running around the upstairs of the home trying to find Emily. When she goes into a bedroom, she finds her granddaughter sitting there completely unharmed. She picks up the baby, she looks her all over, and sees that she doesn't even have a single scratch. She asks Emily if she's seen what happened to her mommy and does she know what happened. Emily, being two years old, is able to give her grandmother a little bit of information and she starts telling her grandmother that she basically watched every single thing that happened to her mommy. But because Emily is just two, she's not able to tell her grandmother what the person looked like or who they were. Her mom runs downstairs and she quickly phones the police and when the police get there, they are shocked at the crime scene that they see. As they start to look over the crime scene and Amy's body, they find out that not only has Amy been brutally attacked, but she has also been sexually assaulted. The police are able to find semen on her bedsheet, so they collect that for evidence as well as a piece of plaster that they cut from the wall as it had a bloody palm print on it. As police further look over the crime scene, they come to the conclusion that whoever did this likely knew Amy. The only thing that was missing from the home was a stereo system. So was this a robbery gone wrong or was Amy the intended target the entire time? As police finish up with the autopsy report in the initial investigation, Amy's family holds a funeral for her and the police feel in their gut that it's best for them to attend Amy's funeral because, again, they believe that whoever attacked Amy likely knew her and her family. Due to the police believing that whoever did this likely knew Amy and her family, and because typically when somebody is murdered and they start with the people closest to them in their lives, the police decided that they're going to start their investigation with her brother, JP, for her sexual assault and murder. The police tried to compare the bloody palm print that they found to JP, but it was not a match and he was quickly ruled out, which JP was very thankful for because he did not want people in his town thinking that he was the one who sexually assaulted and murdered his own sister. The next male in her life that they move on to they feel might actually have a really good motive is Emily's father Tony. The police feel that maybe Tony attacked Amy out of frustration over not allowing him to have a relationship with his daughter which would make sense as to why Emily was never harmed during this attack. 
So the police bring Tony in for questioning and he happens to have an airtight alibi. And again, the bloody palm print that was found on the wall did not match Tony. So he was quickly ruled out as a person of interest or a suspect. The police are adamant that whoever did this knew Amy and they are not going to let that theory go. They also believe that Amy was not the intended target and that the stereo system inside the home was the intended target. So they move on to the next closest male in Amy's life, which was a boy that lived behind them by the name of Troy Jackson. They come up with the theory that because Troy lives behind the family and that he has spent some time with them, he would likely know the family's schedule of coming and going. They bring Troy in for questioning and while he was there, they take pictures of Troy's body. Emily was able to give her grandmother some information that she did watch her mommy fight back. So the police want to look over Troy's body to see if he has any type of defensive wounds, but they find nothing. With Troy having a really good alibi and him not having a single defensive wound on him, they move on to give him a polygraph test. Troy agrees to take the polygraph and he passes it with flying colors. But police know that polygraph tests are not 100% accurate, and so they move on to try and match Troy's palm print with the bloody palm print that was found on the wall. But police, again, have no luck and there is no match. So now they have gone through PJ, Tony, and Troy and have absolutely no luck getting any closer to finding out who sexually assaulted and murdered Amy. It is now 2002 and there has been no movement in Amy's case. That was until a man calls into the local police department there in Indianapolis and tells the police that he had a very odd dream where a girl came to him in his sleep and tells him that she was murdered and gives him very vivid details of how she was killed. The police are not taking this very seriously at first, but the further he goes into the story, the officer realizes that he's talking about the Amy Widener case. The police are feeling that this man is either totally crazy or he is some type of psychic that is not going to be able to help them out. But for whatever reason, this call makes the detective reopen Amy's case. This particular detective spends a large amount of time trying to work on Amy's case, but unfortunately he is left at just dead ends and her case again goes cold until a 2011. In 2011, Amy's family creates a Facebook page in her remembrance. That particular detective that reopened Amy's case keeps a close eye on this Facebook page and he's hoping to find anything that could help him move Amy's case further. He does get lucky and some rumors are starting to spread, but these rumors were never released to the public. Whatever these rumors were prompts him to start re-interviewing all the people that were initially interviewed when Amy was first murdered. When the detective starts re-interviewing people, he starts with the neighbors that lived around the Widener home. One of the neighbors that he interviews tells police that they should talk to a man named Rodney Dink. The neighbor stated that Rodney was an old neighbor of the Wideners and he was also a really good friend of JP. For whatever reason, this guy was never on the police radar in the very beginning. But the detective is desperate, so he tries to locate Rodney Dank. The detective is able to locate Rodney and it turns out that he is still living in the home with his mother. When the detective goes over to the home to find Rodney, he is told by Rodney's mother that he's not home at the time. The detective tells his mother that he would like to speak with Rodney and he is going to give his card to her and asks her to have Rodney give him a call. Not long after Rodney returns home and receives the card from his mother, he does actually give the detective a call. After a short conversation with Rodney, he agrees to meet with the detective. But when it comes time to having to meet with the detective, Rodney completely flakes and this instantly sends up red flags. The detective is feeling a little sketched out about this and so he makes the decision to run Rodney's name through the database system. And when he does, he finds a charge from 91 
for assault and battery. And then again in 97, he was charged with larceny. Thankfully, because Rodney had prior charges, his fingerprints were inside the database system. And the detective makes a very smart decision to try to match the fingerprints that were in the database system to the bloody fingerprints from the palm that was left on the wall. And would you guess it was a perfect match. It takes some time for the detective to track down Rodney, but ultimately he finds him hiding out at a friend's house. When the detective arrives at the friend's home, he knocks on the door and Rodney busts out from the front door screaming, I didn't do it. And he takes a knife and he slits his own wrists. And if that doesn't scream guilty, I don't know what does. After Rodney slits his wrist, an ambulance is called and takes him to the hospital. The detective heads over to the hospital and after Rodney is cared for, he begins questioning him about what happened that day. Rodney tells the police that Amy was never the intended target and that he knew from hanging out with JP that the stereo system was inside the home and that was what he was after. He says after entering the home and walking around, he finds the stereo system and Amy just happened to come around the corner. He says that when he saw Amy, he just flipped out, he lost control and he started hitting her. He goes on to further tell the detective that he blacks out sometime during the attack and begins raping her. He tells the detective that he does not remember the baby being inside the home at all during that day. He says after he attacked Amy, he ran straight to his house and hid the stereo so his parents wouldn't find it. He also tells the detective that he even attended Amy's funeral. So the police were right all along. It was somebody who knew Amy and her family, and they were right on attending her funeral. Chromaholics, if you haven't already, I highly encourage you to join a Chromaholics podcast discussion group on Facebook or follow us on Instagram where I will have pictures of Amy. Chromaholics, as always, be aware and take care. <laughs>